Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Straight Talk from an Insider on global energy, climate, and the shale revolution. Please welcome Diana Furch-Scott-Roth, Director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. Great to be with you today uh, to talk about uh, energy, climate, and the shale revolution. We are so honored to have with us Chris Wright, who's CEO and uh, Chairman of the Board of Liberty Energy. And he is going to give us a few words on what his company does and on the energy situation. I'm going to ask him some questions, and then all of you in the audience and the 400 people online are going to get to ask questions also. And I just want to tell you, the first questions emailed are going to be the ones uh, that Chris gets. Well, Chris's career has been spent in the energy area. He was one of the first pioneers of fracking. He founded Pinnacle Technologies, and he served as its CEO from 1992 to 2006. And as all of you know, Pinnacle created the hydraulic fracture mapping industry, and its innovations helped launch the shale revolution. Chris was chairman of Stroud Energy, an early shale gas producer. And he is the foremost exponent of how fossil fuels lead everybody to a better life, and more energy leads everybody to a better life. And I just want to have a personal anecdote at the beginning of this, which is that for the past few days, my son, his three little children, and his wife have been living at our house. Why? Because their heating system went out. He didn't want to stay in a cold house, so they all moved in with us. And, that just, and he said if he hadn't moved in with us, he would have gone to a hotel. People don't like living without energy. So I'm going to turn it over to Chris. Welcome and thank you for coming from all the way from Denver to speak to us. Thanks, Diana. Glad to be here. And thanks everyone else for joining online or in person for your time. But yeah, energy has been a lifelong passion of mine since, since I was a young kid. In fact, I, I didn't appreciate hydrocarbons fully at the start. I actually chose my college. I went to MIT specifically to work on fusion energy because it was sort of a mania then that was also about the world ending, ending and also about oil and gas as the problem. But the mania then was that we were gonna run out of oil and gas and that running out of oil and gas would end industrial civilization. And heck, that was a frightening thing to a young kid. And um, as sort of a science math guy, I thought I wanna work on that problem. And fusion energy powers the stars. It's 99.999% of all the energy in the universe. Humans are ingenious. I'm gonna go work on that problem. Um, I'm excited to, to do that. It's obviously proven to be a trickier problem that a, a kid would have appreciated. Humans are ingenious. Humans will figure it out. Um, but that's a longer term game. I worked on solar energy briefly in graduate school at UC Berkeley. Um, so I was all in on energy all along. And I've been lucky in many ways in my life. Meeting my wife when I was 18 years old uh, was huge. And in fact, she's the one who, when a missed paycheck at Berkeley, got me a consulting job at a little Silicon Valley company of all things that was in the oil and gas industry. That's how I got into this industry. I love it. As Diana mentioned, I started a company called Pinnacle Technologies, another shale gas producer, another shale oil producer. 
And the company I run today, most of my efforts today are for a company called Liberty Energy. We started about 11 and a half years ago, um, hydraulic fracturing. So the technology around it, um, as well as the horsepower. We have two and a half to three million horsepower of trucks. We frack a little more than 15% of all the wells drilled in the United States or Canada. And I do the simple roll up math of that. It means 8% of total US primary energy production comes from wells fracked by Liberty. That's roughly twice the entire energy produced in the United States from wind and solar. And of course, it's dispatchable, reliable energy for process heat, for electricity, for materials, not, a, not an intermittent lower value source of energy. So I love energy and uh, glad to be here. Wonderful, Chris. Well, all of you have on your chairs Chris's report, Bettering Human Lives. Those of you online have a link to it so you can click on it. Can you tell us something about your volume, Bettering Human Lives, and why you put it out every year? This started from, look, I've been speaking on energy and climate change and poverty and these issues for quite some time, but we took our company public about five years ago, and there's big pressure, you're a public company, you, and you're in our industry, nominally the bad guys, you should write an ESG report. And when I looked at those reports, uh, I was actually horrified. You know, they were mostly, they read to me like apologies that were in this industry. How can you apologize to be in the industry that makes the modern world possible? It's been that together with human liberty, I think the two factors that have led to a doubling of human life expectancy and a just transformation of the human condition over the last two centuries. So I read reports of other companies and thought, I, I, I think that's wrong, I think that's offensive. So the only answer to that is I should write our own ESG report and, and it's quite different. Um, and we try to just lay out the big picture issues. Where does the world get energy? How has that changed with time? What's the biggest energy challenge today? By far and away, that's energy poverty. Millions of people die every year, simply preventable diseases because they don't have access to the same fuels we have. Um, Second biggest global energy challenge, in my view, is providing reliable, affordable, secure energy to enable everyone else that's not in dire poverty, but that enables the possibility of your life to heat your son's home so his kids are comfortable and they can do their homework and go on with their lives. And then the third biggest, but a distant third, is climate change. And I, at some length, write about climate change. I just overview the, what it is, what the data is, what we know about it. Um, there's some effort just showing the extreme weather, since that's the big issue today, we're claiming storms are getting worse. Of course, they're not. Um, and that's uncontroversial for people familiar with the data. Um, and then I talk about climate economics. You know, this is a real issue. Uh, the burning of hydrocarbons is the main driver of the 50% increase in CO2. But what's the impacts of that? And what's the timescale at which this might manifest? And, and the short answer is there, it's a slow-moving, rather modest problem compared to so many issues in society but yet it's used as a political justification to do so many other things. And I think by far the biggest challenge with climate change today is policies pursued in the name of climate change that make energy more expensive and less reliable and therefore hurt human lives, particularly those least able to bear those, those extra burdens and those extra costs. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff about our company in that report as well, but it, it, it's an attempt to say yes, our industry maybe does a dime's worth of damage to the world and it's honorable to shrink that to nine or eight cents. That's a penny or two benefit. We're all in on that. 
but we do a dollar worth of benefit. And if we can grow that dollar to a dollar 10 or a dollar 25, that's 10 times more benefit. So we have to have a more balanced view of energy, not just apologize we're in it. We need to understand where do we need more energy and why does the cost and availability of energy matter? So it's a very different ESG report. It really is, Chris. And I'd like to tell you another story. The reason I'm here in the United States, the reason I met my husband, is because when my father interviewed for a job in the United States back in the 1960s, he called back to London and said to my mother, we have to move to America. In America, they heat the bathrooms. <laughs> that was such, you know, such a big step from what people were used to in London in the 1960s that he thought this was the place to live. So the whole family moved here. Fantastic. Yeah. Glad you're here. You made, you made our country better for it. Thank you. Well, I hope I'm not making it worse. I'd like to ask you which state and which countries are easiest to do business in. You do fracking all over the world. Where do you find that regulations are the most onerous and where do you find it easiest to produce? Well, I would say the, the most practical state for regulations in the United States is North Dakota. Mm. Um, North Dakota, the shale revolution began with natural gas, changed the game, not just for US, but global natural gas prices. Gas molecules are very small. Per shales are almost impermeable rocks. You could spill water on them on your kitchen counter. It would evaporate before it would move through that rock. That's the problem with shale. The first place the shale revolution moved to oil was in North Dakota. And of course, the oil shale revolution changed the game even more than the natural gas. But net, net, North Dakota has a competitive, serious regulatory environment. Of course, we're, we're producing on private land that's farmers and ranchers that have been there for generations. They're passionate about their land. I would say North Dakota has thoughtful, serious regulations, but they're to protect health and safety and make sure the economics of, of the situation for surface owners versus subsurface owners is all handled well, but there's not needless obstacles that really aren't about health and safety. They're just about uh, scoring points to kick our industry or to slow us down. So North Dakota is the best state to operate in. Uh, nations, I don't have a ton of experience there, but I would say United States, uh, clearly, clearly the winner there. United States has grown our oil and natural gas production more in the last 10 years than any nation ever on earth. We're the largest producer of oil, largest producer of natural gas. And I would say more importantly, by far and away, the largest producer of natural gas liquids. Propane, as I write in this report, is my favorite hydrocarbon. It's the hydrocarbon that's the bridge to lift people out of poverty, to solve indoor air pollution, to make petrochemicals, to have rural people in America, in farms, have a clean fuel like natural gas that you don't need a pipeline for. You, it's, it burns clean like a gas, but you can transport it as a liquid. Propane is a wonder material. Um, I testified in the House of Lords in the United Kingdom, birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, the birthplace of Diana. Um, <laughs> and, and I said, the Industrial Revolution began because we had secure property rights, an entrepreneurial spirit, and an energy cost advantage, just transformative for the world. You go to the Midlands of England today and we're O for three. Um, we've got expensive energy, an entrepreneurial spirit that's been crushed because it's very hard to do anything. They actually created a shale gas commission. They put some rules in place. They were gonna move forward with shale development. This is eight years ago in the United Kingdom and a hundred protesters blocking a road for days meant even though the law said the development could happen, the money was paid, the resources were there, a hundred protesters took away the property rights of this business, Quadrilla, and its partners in developing shale gas in England. 
and in fact have that those hundred people meaningfully lowered the quality of life of everyone living in the United Kingdom today. This is something that shouldn't happen, but shamefully didn't happen. Right, and the United Kingdom had fracking for one week before Rishi Sunak came in. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in the United Kingdom rolled it back uh, one week after Liz Truss had put it in. It was one of the first things that he did. Yes. Was roll back the right to frack. So, and electricity prices in the United Kingdom have quadrupled over the past year. Well, speaking of rising prices, can you tell us what inflation and the rising price of energy has done to your industry over the past couple of years and to your company? Um, well, yes, I, I often get asked, you know, hey, with this administration, not just at the federal level, but state levels, they're going to ruin your industry. I'm sorry, Chris, this is too bad. And, and, and my answer to that always is that's not the case at all. When we have restrictive, irrationally restrictive policies against the production of oil and natural gas, those do nothing to change the demand for oil and natural gas. Most of the demands for oil and natural gas, there's not a substitutable alternative. So when you restrict the supply and you don't change the demand, you do one thing, you raise the price. So our, our business today is the most profitable it's ever been. As I say, I'm, I'm one of those people needlessly enriched by sort of the bad policy, uh, bad energy policy environment we live in today. I don't celebrate that. In fact, I adamantly oppose it. Um, and uh, also the demonization of our industry over the last 10 years has made it harder to recruit people to come work into our industry. So we've got an internal recruiting department now. We, we go above and beyond. We employ people, I think, from 46 states. We only have operations in like eight states. But we employ people from 46 states because they work on a two weeks on, two week off schedule. It's a blue collar, rural, you know, somewhat blue collar, uh, typically from rural areas, $100,000 a year starting salaries. And you work two weeks on, two weeks off, home with your family. So I'm very proud that we're changing a number of small rural communities by bringing high paying jobs to people wherever they and their families are. Um, so it's made it a little bit harder to recruit. Um, obviously, inflation's had the same wage pressure. Supply chain issues have been a real challenge for us. Mm -hmm. yeah, Caterpillar, the greatest maker of big equipment in the world, is on allocation today, mm -hmm. you know, of who gets what piece and what part. Three years after uh, the start of the pandemic, there, there's just simply two or three million people are still out of the labor force. Um, and that hurts. You know, key people and key businesses are gone. So everything's, the, the, the gears are still gummed up a little bit. But our business conditions are strong. Frankly, I wish they weren't quite so strong. I wish we had a little bit freer ability to produce more oil and natural gas, bring the prices down. Well, you talked about your environmental, social, and governance policy that's outlined in your book here that all of you have and those of you online can download using the link. Uh, what about your diversity, equity, and inclusion policy? We hear a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion in Washington, D.C. Yes, and we are for uh, diverse ideas and diverse talents. Um, we need a little bit of a uniformity on a passion to make the world a better place and to work hard. Um, but uh, no, we don't, we don't play any games by judging people by their skin color or their gender. Mm -hmm. uh, the great thing about America was it's a meritocracy, and we don't care what anyone's skin color or gender or sexual preference is. We don't care at all. We want great humans that are going to drive our business forward. 
Now, in today's world, think of in our, well, we're an oil and gas company, right? But in our corporate headquarters, where finance and technology and engineering is, it's roughly 50% women, 50% men. That's no engineering design. That's just candidates, great. We, we hire the best people. On a frack crew itself, um, sadly, or maybe not sadly, it's 99% male. We hire everyone. We have women working on frack crews, but very little. Different choices are made in what, in what people want to do, and, and uh, we're not going to change people's preferences or choices. We are absolutely a, a land of opportunity, and we believe in lowering barriers, human liberty. I was a very early signer um, of the, uh, I'm blanking on the name of it, but uh, criminal justice reform. We have a number of people that were formerly incarcerated in prison. They made bad decisions young in life. We don't care about where they came from. We care about where they're going. We have dozens of, of people that came with a very rough start in life, um, but if they're uh, ban the box mm. was the thing. It's not the first question we ask. It's not about someone's past. It's about where you are today and where you're going. Um, a, probably a quarter of our employees are not native English speakers, mostly uh, people from Mexico and Central America that migrated to this country with a great um, uh, work ethic and, and, and drive a lot of the work in rural areas and blue collar stuff, mechanics, uh, frack hands, all, all the way up to, to management in our company. But so our, our thing is, we don't have a policy, but just by being a meritocracy, if you, if you look at the Liberty personnel, you'll, you'll see the rainbow that makes America beautiful. Uh, well, Chris, we hear a lot in Washington about high energy prices. President Biden says he wants prices to go down. Americans are hurting because of high electricity prices. Have any of them called you up to ask you how to lower energy prices in the United States? I'm looking at that phone all the time, Diana, waiting for a little wiggle or a ring or something. And no, uh, I, I've heard from no one in they the They haven't asked you to be on any boards, any commissions, join the Energy Department, join the National Economic Council? Not at all. No. Not at all. Perhaps my outspokenness on, on <laughs> what, might, what, what, what might be the road to get there uh, precludes me. But, I, but honestly, I don't know anyone, any of my colleagues, any of the CEOs of oil and gas companies, I don't know anyone that has been reached out to. Hmm. That's really surprising because of all the problems they talk about here in Washington. One would be thinking they would reach out to you or people in your position or people in the industry that have the experience that can help some of these problems go away. I could qualify that. Our president, I, I believe, has reached out to zero people in our industry. There have been people at, at the Department of Energy that have reached out to some of my customers, some of the larger oil and gas producers, um, and, you know, nine months ago or whatever, and asked them to produce more oil and gas. Mm -hmm. um, not, not, hey, we're going to issue federal permits on land. We're going to stop the regulatory strangle. Hey, we want to we sort of reset the game here. There was no, there was no proposed changes, mm -hmm. but there were from administration officials, not the president, asks for more oil and gas, which is kind of a curious ask. It really is, yes. What do you think about the president going to Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and asking them to produce more? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just truly, it's, it's, it's outrageous. Of, of course, it's crazy. I hear it, and let me take it in another way, Diana. There's, there's a lot of push that, well, we're not going to approve these pipelines and we're not going to drill on federal land. What's the justification? It's for climate change reasons, right? So again, the demand for oil and gas is what the demand for oil and gas is. 
if you don't drill in the United States, right, the same amount of oil is going to be consumed, the same amount of natural gas is going to be consumed. It's just going to be produced somewhere else. So somewhere, some other people are going to have those jobs. Some other people are going to have those businesses. Um, certainly, they're not going to have as clean of production practices as the United States. So I say that's a policy. Banning drilling on federal land is guaranteed to raise greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that, that's just a given. It isn't hugely, but it's a guaranteed way to raise greenhouse gas emissions and lower economic activity in the United States. Like, what, what world is this, a, is this a policy that, you know, that an administration has rallied behind and stood behind? Yeah, no one, no one really knows. No one really knows where it comes from. How about China? Uh, China's using coal-fired power plants to make the wind uh, turbines and solar panels that it's sending over to us. Has China expressed any interest in fracking clean natural gas or the fracking industry? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, I, was, uh, I went over to China for the first time in 1994, um, and I was hired by the United Nations Development Program to teach a class on hydraulic fracturing for coal bed methane production in China. Um, and I went back and presented some papers on that. So I went to China a number of times in the late 90s uh, in older style oil and gas production where there's a product called ceramic propin. It's the thing that holds the fractures open. And before we had the shale technology, how good that propin was mattered. So ceramic manufacturing of propin was invented and started in the United States. Chinese built a number of factories that lowered that supply chain price of that product. That product's almost obsolescent today. But yeah, China, of course, has been very focused on energy production. But as I show, I think in one of the opening plots in that report, we roll the clock back 15 years. 15 years ago, the United States was the largest importer of natural gas in the world. We had over 1,000 rigs drilling for natural gas. Today, there's 100 and some rigs drilling for natural gas. And we're the second largest exporter, net exporter of natural gas in the world. Only Russia is ahead of us. I suspect we'll pass them in the next couple of years. Um, we were the largest importer of oil. Now we're by far and away the largest producer of oil and, and a non-trivial exporter of, of oil products. Um, China went the opposite direction. 15 years ago, China produced almost as much energy, roughly balanced. They produced as much energy as they consumed. They had the Daqing oil field, which really floated the communists for 30 or 40 years, one of the just probably second biggest oil field in the world. And uh, China produced as much energy as they consumed. Now China is a huge, they're the largest energy importer in the world, largest natural gas importer in the world, largest oil importer in the world. Um, so we've really changed positions. The US today has an, just an enormous energy and energy cost advantage over China. But we could be in the process of tripping that up. You know, with the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars with the only sure result being electricity will be more expensive and less reliable. Um, could China do fracking and produce its own natural gas, or does it not have those fields there, or does it not have the technology? So it, it's tried. Um, China has two problems. One is the Himalayan mountains. When the Indian subcontinent crashed into the Asian subcontinent, it put a larger stress on the rocks. And shales, if they have too high a stress on them, it closes down what little permeability they have. So they do have a little bit of a technically harder situation than we have. Um, 
but they don't have the technology, the innovation, the companies that will experiment and will gamble. And they have one other problem that the United Kingdom also has today. The United States is the only country in the world where the private landowner, the farmer and rancher, owns the minerals beneath their feet. So when we go out and we're entrepreneurial, our partnership is with those farmers and those ranchers. They want to protect their land. They want to protect their farm. They want, they, you know, they want all the things you would want if it was your land. But of course, there are partners in developing those resources. When I went to United Kingdom, I would say the birthplace of property rights nationalized all the ownership of minerals uh, early in the 20th century. So if I want to go drill for shale gas in the United Kingdom, the, the government, the, the British government is my partner, technically the crown. Mm -hmm. um, like, is an entrepreneur going to go do that? No. Um, China has the same problem. The government owns all the mineral rights. So the farmers and people that own the land above it, they don't get the benefit from development. So they've had more opposition. They don't have an entrepreneurial system. They don't have a pipeline network. So they could. Um, they're doing more than the Europeans are doing, but they're a long way behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, now we're going to take a break and watch a brief movie featuring Chris, and then we're going to go to audience questions. One question from here, one question from online. So let's, uh, let's look. I'm Chris Wright, CEO of Liberty Energy. North Face recently came out against my industry, even refusing to let one of my competitors put their company logo on a North Face jacket. I went through North Face's website, wide-ranging products, and I failed to find a single product that wasn't made out of oil and gas. The great majority of North Face's products Jackets, backpacks, outdoor pants, shirts, shoes, hats, etc., dominantly made out of the oil and gas that we so proudly produce. Globally, 60% of all clothing fibers are made out of oil and gas. For North Face, it is likely 90% or more. So North Face is not only an extraordinary customer of the oil and gas industry, they are also a partner with the oil and gas industry. So thank you, North Face. All right. Well, thanks very much for producing that. And we're going to go to audience questions here. Please state your name, affiliation, and then ask a brief question, not a comment. We want questions because we have a lot of them. Let's start with this question over here. Myron Ebel, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, Chris, you're, uh, I'm glad to see that you're not in Davos this week, uh, along with uh, <laughs> many other oil executives. And I, I, I just want to congratulate you for being such a great defender of an industry where many CEOs are unwilling and in fact apologize for the, what they do. Uh, but I want to ask you, it took 150 years or more to create the current infrastructure that we have. And we now have political leaders like President Biden and John Kerry and uh, all the foreigners who say we can go to net zero by 2030 or 2035 or 2050. What do you think about the technical side of that? Uh, abandoning the infrastructure that we built over 150 years, that, not me, but the, the industry is built over 150 years and, and creating something new that will uh, at least produce as much energy uh, as the current infrastructure. Um, well, I mean, the, sh the short answer is there's no chance of it happening. Zero. And in fact, most all of these efforts, they're not even, they're not meaningful threats to our industry. Um, everything you hear about, wind, solar, geothermal, tidal power, whatever, these are all in the electricity sector. 
Electricity is 20% of global energy, 20%. Pave the world with solar panels and wind turbines, you'd still have a firming problem. Um, but that's just 20% of global energy. In fact, wind turbines, and I, and, I, and I discussed this, wind turbines are sort of highly visible embodiments of hydrocarbons, right? They have these giant cement bases um, that are, you cannot make without coal and natural gas. Reinforced steel, can't make without coal and natural gas. The towers themselves, those big towers, each have over 100 tons of coal in the tower. The coking coal that you put iron and coal to make them, those giant blades, they're made out of oil, made with and by and out of oil. So that the problem of, of, of wind and solar, just to hit the sort of politically popular ones, is the amount of energy it takes to make those systems. You only get two, three, four, five times as much energy back out, like zero chance of being economically viable on a large scale. A little bit less than 3% of global energy today, trillions of dollars of subsidies, countless mandates, 30 years. I talk, the, 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 the UN climate movement, the energy transition movement began in Rio in 1992. Um, and uh, at that time, the world got 87% of our primary energy from hydrocarbons. Today, it's 84. 30 years, 3% change in market share, and we have record demand for oil today, record demand for natural gas, record demand for coal. Um, so, but, but to manufacture materials, to make cement, steel, plastics, and fertilizer, I cover this in the report. Those are the four pillars of the modern world. Can't do anything without one or all of those four components. They're all not only, we don't have another way to make them without hydrocarbons. Um, partially process heat, in any case, one of the, the terms I say, this energy transition term that's thrown around, it's not happening. And it doesn't matter what government policy does. There's not going to be a meaningful transition in the global energy source for many decades to come. I'm a huge fan of nuclear. I think it should grow, both fission and fusion power. But that'll, be, that'll still be slow. The energy system as it exists today will not be meaningfully different in 2050 you know, our, our, our net zero goal. But the attempt to drive that, to get that 3% change in market share has been quite destructive. It's driven up the price of energy. It's driven down the reliability of electricity, our most important network in the world. And it's just moved industry from the original industrial powerhouses of the United States, North America, and Europe who began industrialization. Europe has just deindustrialized itself gradually over the last 20 or 30 years, and now it's going to happen more rapidly. But that's not a greenhouse gas reduction. If you don't make something in a modern factory powered by natural gas in the United Kingdom, you instead build it in a, in a lower-tech coal-powered factory in Vietnam and then ship the goods on diesel-powered tips back, that's not a greenhouse gas reduction. So all these country and state-based targets are just foolish. The United Kingdom has the largest percentage drop in their greenhouse gases. Absolute terms, that's the US. In, in percentage terms, it's the United Kingdom, and they're very proud about it. But what they don't point out is they've had a 40% drop in their greenhouse gas emissions. They've had a 30% drop in total energy consumption. They just exported their industry out and made energy expensive. And if something's expensive and less reliable, you consume less of it. They, they use the same products. They're just not made there anymore. So 
what, what the report and my efforts in general are just try to bring a little bit of common sense, which means looking at numbers for climate change, poverty, energy, and where it comes from. And a reminder for those of you online, we have posted the link to the report called Bettering Human Lives. Well, this question leads to our first online question. Uh, Chris, you mentioned the former mania that we would run out of fossil fuels. Do you have an estimate today as to how much fossil fuels we have left in terms of time? Forever. 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 Yeah. I, I, I say to people, when you talk about uh, energy, that, that, that the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. Um, <laughs> and the age of hydrocarbons which again, will be around for a long time, and I think it will have a gradual reduction, most likely as nuclear technologies become better. You know, with, with great nuclear technology, we could produce most all of our electricity that way. With nuclear, you can also get process heat, so it can be valuable in manufacturing. The, I mean, pharmaceuticals, the drugs we take uh, to keep us alive, those have hydrocarbons in them. So hydrocarbons will be in the human system forever. And uh, the worry about running out of them is just, is just gone. Mm -hmm. I, I always say to people, a million years from now, 90% of the hydrocarbons that were underground a million years ago will still be underground. The resource base is just unbelievably large. There was the, the confusion that drove the mania in the 80s was that reserves were somehow a measurement of how much hydrocarbon there are. No, nonsense. It's, it's how much a company has that it's going to develop in a reasonable time frame with today's technology. You know, it's viable today. Well, all the shales, over 70% of U.S. gas and over 50% of U.S. oil today comes from shale production technology. 30 years ago, people would have laughed at you said you're going to get oil and gas out of shale. That's just 30 years ago. Um, there's methane hydrates at the bottom of all the ocean floors, just a, you know, godzillion amount of natural gas. There's, there's oil in all different forms in kerogen that, that we have, we have, think of it roughly with 500 million years of stored solar energy buried underground, right? That's oil. The dinosaurs didn't become oil and gas. It was seaborne life, but seas cover 70% of the earth. It's the phytoplankton that live in the ocean for 500 million years that are buried and, and, and converted into carriage and then heavy oil and eventually into natural gas in this product suite. The, the resource base is unbelievable. We will never run out of oil and gas. Okay. All right. All right. That's great to know. Too oh. long of an answer. No, no, absolutely. We have a question over here. Just state your name and the, the question. <clears throat> yeah. So I'm Bill Walters, University of Maryland, Atmospheric, Nuclear, and Environmental Chemistry. Could you tell us about Joe Manchin's pipeline and the Marcellus Shale? Yes, yes. So look, the, the shale revolution began in the Barnett Shale of Texas, just under the northern suburbs of Fort Worth, Texas. And this company, Mitchell Energy, had a gas supply contract with a Chicago utility that guaranteed them a certain price for gas from that field. And well, they were running out of gas from that field, and, and they said, we're going to figure out how to get more in this field, and there was a shale. So the Barnett Shale is nowhere near the best shale. It was the shale in this gas contract area, but it, it, it changed the world. The, the best to date so far shale from which to produce natural gas is the Marcellus Shale, and below it's the Utica Shale, another just enormous shale. The, the size of the resource is unbelievable, and it underlies Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, and southern New York. And we know how much value and blue-collar jobs and low energy is coming out of New York. Um, not. Um, but, 
Because so this, New York is refusing to get that shale. They're not getting it out of the ground, so it's just there. So this resource area that had not recently been that active in oil and gas development, you know, had this fantastic shale, you know, now, look, production only started there 14, 15 years ago. That region today produces about 50% as much natural gas as the entire United States did 15 years ago, um, and 30% of today's massive U.S. production. It could produce massively more, but it's limited by the ability to take that gas and to move it to marketplace. Um, and so as that, the, the pipelines that used to exist came from Texas and Oklahoma to pipe natural gas up to the Northeast. Those old pipelines got reversed to send natural gas down to where the petrochemical and industry is in the United States and for export. Um, and some new pipelines have been built, but in the last 10 years, again, just crazy, justified in the name of climate change, is we're gonna stop building pipelines. So the natural gas production today is limited by its ability to move natural gas out. The Mountain Valley Pipeline, the Joe Manchin Pipeline, is over 90% constructed. These are multi-billion dollar, thousand mile long infrastructure buried pipeline projects. But there's a couple disputed areas about whether it can cross this area or go that area. It had permits and the permits got removed. So what Joe Manchin wants and what anybody with common sense wants is finish that pipeline mm -hmm. so that that natural gas can leave there and go down to the southeastern United States so that Georgia and Alabama and um, the Carolinas um, can have low-cost heating fuel and continue to grow their electricity production. Um, another pipeline that goes across New York to take gas from the Marcellus into New England was a big fight, and they didn't approve the expansion, just expansion, just put more compressors so you can push more gas through that pipeline. Didn't get done for climate reasons nominally. So what's the result today? Natural gas prices in the U.S. today are like three, $3.50, just that, that's a million British thermal units, don't worry about the units, $3.50. In New England, they're about five times that expensive. So they can't get enough natural gas. They can't get enough natural gas to power all the electricity they want. So at peak electricity demand, New England has had periods, weekends, where they're over 25% of their electricity comes from burning oil, oil dirtier, more expensive, you know, that no one burns oil for electricity except Hawaii and island nations that can't get natural gas or other sources. But the standing in the way of infrastructure has made New England have high power prices, um, increasing oil. They used to get their supplemental natural gas, liquefied natural gas from Russia. A few photos were taken of the Russian tankers unloading gas at Boston Harbor, and they don't do that anymore. But it, it is, California suffers the same problem. Just last week, California had five times higher nat natural gas prices than the rest of the country. Pipeline, infrastructure. We have these energy resources blocking the movement of these energy resources. There's nothing green about it. And where does New England get its oil from? Um, over, overseas, overseas. Because of a crazy thing we have, like many of you know, the Jones Act that is very expensive to ship things from the US ports of Houston um, and the Gulf Coast, where we export oil to other U.S. ports. So they used to buy their oil from Russia as well, and now they're probably getting it from Nigeria uh, or, or the Middle East. But standing in the way of energy infrastructure just means more cost, less safety, uh, higher price, and lower human opportunity. But yet it's politically popular. Let's go to the next online question. How do we overcome the misinformation 
being sold by climate change as an environment fanatic. Wow, great. A number of people have told me, you shouldn't speak about climate change. It's too, it's too controversial. And my answer to that is 100% wrong. It's, it's such a huge driving force in society today. We must speak about climate change. And again, I wrote this report that in, in 20 minutes, if you read that, you will know more about climate change than 99.9% .9 of the people out there. Um, and so you don't have to be an expert. To, to know the basic data, I think, is very important for this dialogue, because everything has trade-offs. Everything has trade-offs. And so I often get asked when I give these talks at universities, do you think you're going to change everyone's minds or opinions? And, and my answer is, well, hopefully the people in the audience, I, I, my, my experience has shown I, I, I can change people's minds or opinions, because most people are open-minded. Even college students you think are, are, are rabid about this, they just never heard a, a thoughtful presentation of it. 80% 80, 80 of the people in the end of a college campus at the end of a, a talk will have a much more measured, realistic view of climate change. People are very movable on this topic. They just don't know that much about it. It feels good. It sounds good. They've only heard one side. The problem is that's, that's a one-on-one -on -one or a classroom basis. That's not changing the world. My, my view and remains my view is the only thing that will really change people's view on this is expensive and unreliable energy. Um, when people can't afford to heat their house or their electricity grid goes out and their business has to shut down and move overseas or move to a different state with a reliable electricity grid, that brings sobriety. You know, Ger Germany adamantly opposed building natural gas in import infrastructure because they're not going to need natural gas anymore. They, they, they maintained that line for 25 years, and they've already finished two, and they're soon to finish their third natural gas import terminal. They didn't get any more sober on climate change. In fact, the thoughtful people probably already were sober about climate change, but they were using this top-down, redesign the world energy system because it's politically convenient. But as soon as it hit German industry and people and all that, they're building infrastructure as fast as they can. And, and I, I think the same thing will happen here. The question is, how far do we sink before sobriety returns. Your country, I think, is the worst, your home country, yeah. the United Kingdom is the worst example of a country that just slowly strangled itself and has to date never reversed course. Mm -hmm. They've just exported all jobs and industry out of the United Kingdom. It's just, to me, so ironic. The birthplace of the Industrial Revolution is is nearly completely deindustrialized. Well, it's particularly ironic because the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, used to write extensively about the need for energy development. And then when he became Prime Minister, that fell by the wayside. And um, he changed his mind completely, which lost him his premiership. Hi, I'm Gage, and I'm a legal counsel at a, in a Senate office. And the first thing I noticed when I was flipping through the packet was the commitment to ESG section, and you mentioned it up here. When I hear ESG, you know, what comes to my mind is rising gas prices, DEI, puberty blockers for eight-year-olds. You know, is it really smart for a fossil fuel company or really any company to align themselves with this movement? So great question, great question, and I and I and I wrestled with that, you know, when when I when I wrote those words and said that, my my take on it, although it may not have been the my take has been we're defining ESG, we're defining we're going to make the environment better. The greatest force for social progress in the history of the world ever is business. Um, 
So for us, that's, that's a culture of our company. That's the way we roll our engagement with our communities. And people, people love to work at Liberty because we're very passionate about our culture, um, internal to our company and external to our company. None of that comes from the box checking I get from forms from other companies to, so to, to satisfy their social criteria. So I am adamantly against the top-down definition of what uh, is environmentally the, the right trade-offs, what socially is the right thing. Governance should be pretty straightforward, align management with, with ownership, with shareholders. But uh, I, I, you make a good point. And, I, and, and in fact, you probably won't see that in next year's report, because my goal was to redefine ESG. But what, when people hear ESG, they think of top-down control. So very fair critique. I, I think you're spot on. In fact, I say in the letter in this report that, that uh, it's unfortunate. In, in my view, two things created the modern world, allowed doubling human life expectancy, modern medicine, planes, trains, and automobiles, the rise of human liberty, and hydrocarbons. Every, everything else followed from those two phenomenon. And now we have a, a investment ESG movement that opposes both of them. It's anti-hydrocarbons and it's anti-bottom-up social organization because they want to give you the questions that you answer to decide if you're socially virtuous. And I adamantly oppose that. Um, so by using those words in that context you just read, I think it's a fair critique. Well, uh, the next online question is, all dependable data indicates there's no climate crisis. Why doesn't Heritage focus on this more? Well, that's probably a question for me. Uh, in September, Heritage started its Center on Energy, Climate, and Environment. Uh, we have podcasts. We have a newsletter called The Charge that comes out every two weeks. We have multiple scholars writing op-eds and columns in newspapers and media outlets. And we have monthly events, and we've invited Chris. So we are trying to do as much as we can. We, In addition, we have a Climate Science Advisory Committee, and we're going to be uh, publishing some papers on this. But if any more of you have ideas of what we should do, uh, then please let me know. Let me, let me agree with Diana. I wrote, I wrote a piece about a year ago in the Denver newspaper, sort of a long form editorial, and I opened with, there is no climate crisis. There is no energy transition either. You know, we can't be subtle about those things. We need to speak clearly. In fact, I released a video just as we're, just today, that goes through what I say five terms that people in our industry and across this country use that are all wrong. They're deceptive and they're destructive. Climate crisis, energy transition, carbon pollution, clean energy, and dirty energy. All those terms are nonsense terms that were made up by alarmists who oppose our industry, but yet they're in widespread use today, and I think that's unfortunate. So I took 12 minutes to try to shoot down each of them one, one by one. But I, I agree, all of us, including Heritage, should do more, and yeah, Diana yeah. shall. And when I uh, go around the country talking on campuses, the title of my talk is Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and Net Zero 2050. And I ask them how many believe in Santa Claus, how many believe in Tooth Fairy, and how many believe in Net Zero 2050. And in fact, one professor uh, stood up and said, I believe in the Tooth Fairy. I am the Tooth Fairy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I love that title. <laughs> yeah. That's good, Diana. Let's go to you. Uh, good morning. I'm Kent Lastman with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, one, one theory we often hear is that leading politicians, uh, business leaders like yourself, they suffer. They suffer socially when they come out and speak these sorts of truths that you're talking about, that you've written about. I wonder 
have you suffered and in what ways? Or is that just a theory with no basis? So great question, Kent. And uh, yeah, I, I hear that all the time from other leaders in my industry. Chris, God bless you. You're taking the bullets. We love what you're doing, but we're not going to say that publicly. I mean, across our industry, I hear that. And, and my answer to your question is, I'm not suffering at all, at all. Um, I want to engage in this dialogue or debate. I go to universities. I testify in front of the Climate Crisis Committee. Um, if you lay out a rational, thoughtful argument of these things, the, the, the opponents have nothing. They're quiet. They're, I, did, I did a debate at CU Boulder, the World Affairs Council event. The Boulder mayor was the moderator, New York Times renewable energy reporter, anti-frack professor from uh, Penn State, and me. Um, in, a, in a bolder crowd, hundreds of people and thousands online, and, and crushingly, crushingly won that debate. In the eyes of the bolder people that were in the room, I think if you couch this in everything has trade-offs, human poverty and, and energy energizing society matters, you understand something about climate change and the trade-offs that are going there, people, people can change their perspective pretty quickly. Um, so no, I, 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 people have said, oh, you write this report, investors are going to be mad. I, I, I'm waiting. I'd love to hear critiques or pushbacks. And I, I like, if I'm on TV and I say this stuff, I want the news person to say, that's bullshit. They never do. Never do. Um, no, I think honest, candid, sincere truth uh, can engage dialogue or whatever, but does, does, does not cost me socially. So we have a couple of online questions about Europe. With the current war situation in Europe, the oil and gas exporting and importer dynamics have changed internationally. Where will the US find herself in the oil and gas international economy in the next five years? And similarly, with the ongoing war in Ukraine, have you seen an increased demand for American LNG? Are there plans to increase the number of LNG terminals in Europe to counter Putin? Yeah, well, yes to all of those. Yes to all of those. Um, so for the first time this last year, the majority, I think over 60% of U.S. exported LNG went to Europe. Uh, mostly it goes to Asia, right? The longtime biggest importer of LNG in the world was Japan. China recently passed Japan. Korea's up there too, because they're three big industrially powerful nations that don't have easily producible natural gas resources. Um, Europe has always been an LNG importer, but was mostly pipeline exports and the biggest component of that from Russia. Um, and in fact, I think foolishly didn't build the infrastructure to get LNG if there ever were going to be any problems, because it's probably not a crazy stretch that there might be a problem with Russia as your key supplier. Um, and sure enough, that, that's happened. So yes, the, the demand for natural gas is, is growing quickly. Let me say one other thing. People often say, well, we have this crisis in high energy prices because Russia invaded Ukraine. I think it's the other way. And I wrote a piece on this. In September of 21, so five months before Russia invaded Ukraine, global natural gas prices, global natural gas prices more than doubled for a simple reason, because demand outstripped all the liquefaction and transportation capacity for it, right? Natural gas over the last 10 or 15 years is by far and away the fastest growing energy source, hands down. Solar and wind on a percentage basis, but they're tiny. On new energy brought to the world to make human lives possible, natural gas is the fast growing resource. So you need infrastructure, increasing infrastructure to move that. So last September, we crossed that threshold. 
global natural gas prices skyrocketed. Um, Pakistan had to shut down schools because they couldn't afford enough LNG. All their buses are powered on, on natural gas. People couldn't afford to heat. Fertilizer plants got shut down. China banned the export of nitrogen fertilizer, the most important substance in the world. 50% of global food production, 50% comes from one factor, nitrogen fertilizer. Nitrogen fertilizer is made out of and natural gas. The, nit the hydrogen comes from the natural gas. And the energy, high temperature heat source, is natural gas, this Haber-Bosch process. So the world went into an energy crisis in September of 2021. This is when Putin has maximum leverage, right? He started to amass troops and, and invaded five months later. Now, he's wanted to invade Ukraine forever. This didn't cause it, but I think it massively set the timing of it. When he first went into Ukraine, 2014, a time of high oil and high natural gas prices. People that, have, that are resource providers are going to use that leverage when they have it. But we let him have that leverage by the slow foot dragging in this country to not build more LNG export capacity. We have enormous resources, tremendous economics, worldwide demand for it. Um, the only country that can move quickly, but yet we slow dragged our feet, gave Putin huge leverage, and we are where we are. Now, there's more import capacity coming on in this country over the next five or 10 years, um, but we're going we're gonna to be in a sticky global gas situation for many years because of a lack of infrastructure, not a lack of gas. It does suggest that perhaps we don't want to be dependent on China for batteries <clears throat> for our 100% fleet of electric, battery electric vehicles in 2035, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, Chi the Chinese have this terrible energy dependence, and they're envious of what we have, but they have this manufacturing capacity, and they've seen the way the world is going to invest trillions of dollars, mm -hmm. and they have built the infrastructure to, to build polysilicon and solar panels and wind and rare earth metal processing, cobalt processing. China has built the workshop to buy all the things we say we want to buy. Um, yeah, yeah. And in fact, uh, next event next month is going to be with two people from Africa, from Cote d'Ivoire and South Africa, talking about these minerals in Africa and how the Chinese are vacuuming them up before we can get them. It's going to be our next event. Let's go over here. Uh, what? Maybe you should wait for the mic and state your affiliation. John Brightbill, I'm an attorney here in town. What do you consider to be the most counterproductive federal regulatory policies that are negatively impacting our energy competitiveness? Wow, that's a, I got to be more politically savvy to know the answer to that. Um, certainly the increasing reach of regulatory bodies, you know, the EPA has made it very hard to do stuff in new areas, you know, and, and that's not just oil and gas, right? solar or wind. Building infrastructure has become incredibly hard in this country. Um, the Keystone Pipeline gets built up to the Canadian border, even part of it on our side, and then that gets canceled. That hurts the U.S. refining sector that needs that heavy, that different kind of heavy oil they produce in Canada that we don't produce much in the U.S. Um, I personally recently wrote a long uh, comment letter on the SEC proposed climate guidelines. This is just trying to scare money and capital out of our industry. Um, the uh, FERC 
FERC has been incredibly obstructive in getting, getting infrastructure built and all that, again, in the name of climate change. They wanted to pass a new rule that any pipeline had to consider the climate impacts of that pipeline and the extreme weather impacts. I wrote a long comment letter on that on the Gulf Coast showing them the data and what's happening. Um, but again, it isn't driven. The, the, what's frustrating to me is the policies are not based on actual climate damages. They, they don't even look or learn. It's just sort of let's oppose fossil fuels because either they think that's politically effective for them or, or, or somehow they're naive enough to believe this is, this is making the world a better place. The endangerment finding um, on carbon dioxide, I think, was, was also uh, false on, on the merits. And it is, given, it, it is given a way for the government to grow its tentacles and grow its stuff in there. The government having regulatories to trade off cost benefits and safety, there's a role for the government there. But, but all these different things have been used simply to pursue really a political agenda. It's not an energy agenda. It's a political agenda to oppose hydrocarbons, which is, it's, it's just crazy. And as they say, look, most of it enriches the people that are already in the industry, right? Because you're reducing supply and you're jacking up prices. But you're hurting communities, you're hurting, you're hurting. We want to reshore stuff in the United States. Well, when people want to reshore in the United States, they care about two things. What's the energy price, the energy cost and reliability, and the workforce? Um, and we're undermining those very things that are just central to bringing jobs, manufacturing, and, and high-quality lives in this country. So truly, it is an all-of-government approach that is uh, trying to make it harder and harder for hydrocarbon development here. Chris, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I'd like to give you a chance to summarize uh, um, your, your message for our audience here and also for our large online audience. Great. Um, look, energy matters. It, it enables everything else humans do. You know, you work for Google or Facebook, and you think, oh, I don't care about energy. Well. <laughs> The, the internet, of course, and servers and AI are huge users of energy. A energy is what's enabled this transformation, the human condition. So I encourage everyone to learn a little bit more about it um, and to push for sober, thoughtful trade-offs in this area. It's just so desperately missing from the dialogue. And don't be shy. I mean, I get a frustration with my own industry. People don't engage in the energy dialogue. They keep our head down. You know, they won't shoot at us. No, this, this is a global problem. I'll, I'll, I'll end with what I think is the most outrageous thing that the, the, this movement has done, which is at the conference, the climate conference in Glasgow in the late 2021, you know, 19 nations pledged to end development lending to developing countries for any hydrocarbon or hydrocarbon infrastructure. This is 3 million easily preventable deaths a year from indoor air pollution. Like this is, this is infuriating to me that we haven't ended that problem yet. Market forces and private capital will, will eventually end this, but putting barriers or obstacles to people trying to live lives like us, um, that's not just wrong, that's immoral. Yeah. No, you are absolutely right. And we're going to hear next month from Thierry Tano from Côte d'Ivoire and Francois Baird from South Africa about the problems that these countries are having and the African continent because of lack of loans for yeah. conventional fuel projects. Well, I'd like to thank you so much for coming, Chris. It has really meant a lot to us. Uh, we've all enjoyed hearing you. We're going to spread your message 
we're going to spread betterment of human lives. And let's all give Chris a big hand.